we'll get started, inshallah, with the, um, with the next uh, session. Um, so we covered uh, a couple of points related to repentance, and uh, I want to cover two more today uh, from the book. Um, so we'll begin, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So uh, Ibn, Ibn Ata'illah, rahmatullahi alayhi, um, he says, من علامات موت القلب عدم الحزن على ما فاتك من الموافقات وترك الندم على ما فعلته من وجود الذلات uh, He says, I'm translating here, uh, that among the signs or from the sign of the heart's death, from the sign of the heart's death is the absence of sadness over the acts of obedience that you have neglected. And the abandonment of regret over the mistakes that you have made. Okay? So I'll, I'll just repeat the translation. A sign of the heart's death is the absence of sadness over the acts of obedience that you have neglected. And the abandonment of regret over the mistakes that you have made. Um, this is important. Many a times people want to know, um, they ask themselves, or they'll ask someone else, what is the state of my heart? How do I know? Is it alive? Is it sort of wavering? Is it near death? Has it died altogether? So Ibn Ata'illah, he's sort of um, highlighting this for us. Um, so the commentator says, Know that just as the life of the physical body is dependent on food, the life of the spiritual heart is dependent on faith or iman. And righteous deeds, amal uh, as-saliha, is dependent on faith and righteous deeds. In the same way as the physical body would perish, if deprived of nourishment, the spiritual heart dies without its own sustenance. So this is an important principle, and if you've attended prior gatherings, you know we've talked about this topic um, at length. And that is to understand that we, each human being is composed of both a physical heart and a spiritual heart. And the physical heart is what keeps us physically alive. It beats, it um, provides uh, blood to the rest of the body, that blood carries oxygen to the rest of the organs of the body that are dependent on it. And it pl provides nourishment so that body can sustain itself. And then, and then it brings back some of those waste products from those organs and it takes it back and it recycles them. So the physical heart sustains the body. And as we know, when the physical heart becomes weak through disease or through etc., the rest of the body begins to struggle and begins to suffer. If you have a patient who has heart failure, for instance, their heart is not, and heart failure is essentially the heart's inability to pump enough blood that meets the demands of the body. That's what we call heart failure. Um, that's a sign of a very diseased heart. And then we know also that eventually when the heart completely dies, right, let's say the heart stops pumping, the entire body comes to, ceases to exist. It's the one organ that's required in order for the body to actually be, uh, to continue. So every human being has a physical heart. It's, you can see it on a scan. If you open up the chest, you'll be able to see it. And everyone knows the physiology of the heart is essential to the sustenance of the body. Similarly, just as the physical heart is essential to the physical body, we have a spiritual heart that's essential for our soul as well. And if that spirit, and the same principles apply, the same principles apply. If the spiritual heart is healthy, then you'll see a, a, a productive uh, Muslim and servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if that spiritual heart is, let's say, diseased, or it's in spiritual failure, right, akin to heart failure, you'll see that it's not able to meet the needs and the demands of what 
a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needs to accomplish and achieve. And eventually, a person can reach a state where they, uh, which, which results in spiritual death of the heart altogether. If the heart completely dies, right, that's almost a point of no return. Right? I mean, that's the point of no return because that heart no longer has any attachment or connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And to revive it requires essentially converting back, right? Converting back to Islam and then restarting that path. So the spiritual heart, just like the physical heart, you know, if you feed the physical heart healthy food, you exercise every day, and you, um, uh, you sleep well at night, and you take care of it, that physical heart's going to take you a really long way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give you a nice, long, healthy, comfortable life, right, for the most part. Uh, if you neglect it, and you smoke, and you give it, and, you know, fill it with toxins, or you uh, eat unhealthy, right, and you fill it with unnecessary sugar and unnecessary uh, unhealthy fats and things like that, and cholesterol, uh, it's going to cause the physical heart to, 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 to be diseased, and eventually that physical heart is going to die. Um, spiritually as well, it really matters what we feed the heart. The heart can be fed many things. You can feed it things of goodness or things that are heavenly, and that's the food for the spiritual heart. So you can't feed the spiritual heart, you know, green vegetables and exercise, but you can feed the spiritual heart, dhikr of Allah, the Qur'an, the company of one another, the masjid. All of these things feed the spiritual heart, and they keep it sustained, and they keep it healthy. Right? They keep it healthy. Um, so we have to monitor what we put into our spiritual heart. Uh, the things that I consume. You know, are these things positive? Are they having a positive impact on my spiritual heart, or are they not? Because anything that I consume through my eyes or through my ears, and all of these are pathways directly to my spiritual heart, all of these have some effect on my heart. If it's something that's positive and heavenly, it's going to grow my heart, or it's going to, at the bare minimum, sustain my heart in a healthy state. And if I consume things through, through my eyes and through my ears, etc., I mean, those are the two main pathways, and I consume things that are detrimental to me, it's going to affect my spiritual heart. And that's eventually going to cause me to become more and more astray, and eventually that heart just completely ceases to exist. So I have to be mindful about what I consume, because that, con that, that, that consumption directly affects my spiritual heart. Everyone understands that? Okay, so I'm just going to repeat the commentary. Know that just as the life of the physical body is dependent on food, the life of the spiritual heart is dependent on faith, which is iman, and righteous deeds, which is amal as-salih. So righteous deeds, iman, these things, if I consume them, expect that my spiritual heart will remain um, uh, afloat, it will remain healthy, it will remain um, uh, through, um, through, through thick and thin. In the same way as a physical body would perish if deprived of nourishment, right? So now let's get extreme here. If the physical body were to be starved completely, forget unhealthy foods, exercise, diet, those things take decades to actually affect the physical heart. But let's say you just completely suppress the body from any form of nourishment. You starved it, no water, no drink, no food, nothing. You may have 10, 14 days before that completely ceases. In the same way the physical body would perish if deprived of nourishment, the spiritual heart dies without its own sustenance. So imagine if a heart is not exposed to salah or Qur'an or good company or the masjid or the dhikr of Allah for 14 days or 20 days or 30 days, what the state of that heart would be. You know, this is the reason Ramadan comes and the whole community revives the heart collectively. Some more than others, but everyone gets this rejuvenation. And then the other 11 months of the year, sadly, it kind of drops off and you kind of feel the state that you and I are in today. I mean, we're, we're, we're about three months short of Ramadan now, two months maybe. Um, you know, it's been a tough. It's been a tough several months for a lot of us. And I don't, many, most, many of us can't say that we've given the attention to our heart that our heart deserves. It deserves attention.
It deserves attention. So he says, um, thus, if one is unconcerned with acts of disobedience, such as the neglect of the ritual prayer, salah, or psalm, or fasting, or actions of disobedience committed by others, then this spiritual state is clearly indicative of the fact that one's spiritual heart is dead and devoid of the states of faith. Okay, so let's bring this back to the, to the point that Ibn, uh, Ibn Atayla mentions. He says, a sign of the heart's death. So now, now we understand, physical heart, spiritual heart. Now, he's saying, a sign of the heart, the spiritual heart's death, is the absence of sadness over the acts of e- obedience that you have neglected. So for instance, if I know that I should be praying as much salah in the masjid as I can, and salah after salah goes by in the masjid and congregation, and I'm at home comfortably skipping salah, and it doesn't phase me, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't like I'm not reminded that oh I should have done it. You know, the, the, I should have done this is a is a good sign. But if I that doesn't cross my mind, that's a sign of a diseased heart, right? If it doesn't cross my mind, a day goes by, the next day goes by, and I haven't opened up the Quran and to recite it, and it doesn't bother me. These are acts of obedience that I've left behind, and it doesn't phase me. That's a sign of a heart that's that's uh, that's dying. The sign of heart's dying. I mean, you could take your example of which act of worship you know, we're referring to. Um, even a sunnah. Even a sunnah. Like, there's so many sunnahs that are available. The sunnah of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays, and the sunnah of fasting on the, 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 the middle of the month, the white days, uh, the sunnah of whatever, you know, and, and so many sunnahs. I mean, it's one thing to follow a sunnah, which is the ideal, uh, but, but at the bare minimum, when we miss a sunnah, it should cross our mind that I wish... I was able to fulfill it because that's a sign that the heart has some, some, some life in it. If Monday and Thursday goes by and it, I, it doesn't even cross my mind that, you know, I wish I had the energy, I wish I could have fasted that day, that's a problem because that's a sign of, uh, of opportunity to progress toward Allah and it didn't even phase me. It didn't even phase me. You know, the, so, so take your example. I mean, there's so many examples of this that we should, um, that we should be mindful of it. He says, um, uh, and then he says, uh, and the abandonment of regret over the mistakes that you have made. That's also the sign of the heart's death, right? The mawt al-qalb is what he's talking about. One is that when deeds pass by me and I've neglected them, it doesn't faze me. The second is when I commit sin or a mistake I make, I don't have any regret over that mistake. This is another sign of the heart's death. Right? So, I mean, it's a good state to be in that when I do something that transgresses against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I have some semblance of remorse in my heart. Right? That I feel bad about it. I, I feel sad. Even if it's a perpetual sin, it's something that I feel bad about. That's a good sign. But, you know, much of the ummah, may, maybe us as well, uh, we, 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 we transgress against Allah and it just doesn't phase us anymore. And that's a, that's a concerning place for the heart to be. Um, but it's the answer to a lot of people's questions as well, which is, I want to know the state of my heart. Well, then use this as the gauge. When there's an opportunity to perform an act of worship that I know of, uh, and it passes me, and it phases me, that's a good sign. If it doesn't phase me, it's a problem. Similarly, when I commit a sin, again, using this as a litmus test or a gauge for where my heart stands, if, I co- if a sin occurs and it bothers me that it occurred, and I feel upset that it had happened, that's a good sign. But if I, it doesn't phase me, or if you look, and this isn't, our job is not to pass judgment on others, but I think there's some lessons we take from just looking at the general Muslim community. If the general Muslim community is involved in sin rampantly, 
and we see that it's not phasing the community, that's a sign that the community's hearts are dead. And if, the if there's plenty of opportunity to worship Allah and raise Allah's great name in gatherings and in the masjid, and the community's devoid of this, or they're not participating in this, and they're not phased by it, in fact, they're, they're, they, they argue the opposite, which is that there isn't a need for these sorts of things, well, then that just shows the state, the collective state of the heart of the community, and we should be very careful where we place our heart. And this is a side point, but if we sense this within the community that we live in, um, we should be mindful that you know, our heart's going to be affected by this as well. If my heart is around the hearts of people who are phased when they miss worship and phased when they transgress against Allah, then my heart will also eventually become that kind of a heart. Uh, but if my heart is in the company of a community or a group of people who don't care, who just don't care, it doesn't phase them anymore, then eventually that'll also affect me as well. So it's, it's something to really, really deeply think about. So he says, the commentator says, um, uh, he continues, Yet when the heart derives pleasure from acts of obedience and grieves when afflicted with sin, then the indication is that the light of faith, Nurul Iman, is radiating. Right? Everyone, every believer has uh, the light of, of, of faith in their heart. We don't see it, and the spiritual heart is there. It's, it's, it's a light of faith, and it, and it burns like a candle. And, you know, ibadah and worship and avoiding uh, uh, these sort of uh, ibadah and worship and coming to the masjid and these sorts of righteous acts and sacrificing for others, these sort of grow that flame in the heart. And it allows it to sort of not only produce this heat and this warmth that drives us, but it also produces this light by which we can see. Um, and, 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 uh, uh, but over time, and so what he's saying is that uh, when the heart derives pleasure from acts of obedience and grieves when afflicted with sin, then it's an indication that that light of faith is radiating in a person's heart, right? Um, but, you know, over time, that light can extinguish. I mean, you see, sometimes you, just, you get a flicker of a candle. Sometimes you just get a pilot that barely, barely has any, you blow it out if you, you know, very quickly. Some storm comes, some spiritual storm comes, some affliction comes to the ummah. I mean, uh, you know, anytime the ummah goes through difficulty, I know that we... Uh, a, a lot of us see, uh, when, when part of the ummah is going through difficulty, a lot of us uh, sort of maybe come closer to Allah, turn back to the masjid, but we're a small segment of the Muslim community. Uh, when these sorts of trials afflict the Muslim community or ummah at large, <laughs> believe it or not, most Muslims end up turning away from Allah than coming closer to Allah. Because that it's just a bare flicker, it's barely a flicker. So now when a, a believer barely has, or a community barely has a flicker of a candle still, you know, uh, a flame barely alive in their heart, and now some storm comes, right? All of a sudden now everyone's questioning, why is this happening? These are Muslims. Uh, th this isn't something that God should be doing to, and then Iman is gone. So when these sorts of trials come uh, to the ummah, don't, I mean, yes, maybe a small segment of the people that we see are, are maybe trying to grow in faith, but th that's not the state of the majority of the community, unfortunately, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from, from, from that. Um, okay. Oh, the final point I want to make about this, um, this statement that he mentions about the sign of the heart's death, uh, this is just, the, 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 I want to mention the side point, which is that um, every scholar says the same thing. You know, this notion of the heart needing nourishment and being fed and the soul. I mean, you could look at our scholarship since the time of the Prophet going down and everyone has the same message. We've covered many texts over many retreats 
And the scholars all point to the same thing, which is the heart is the focal point of every single believer. And it absolutely has to be given attention before we look in any other direction. And if we don't give it its attention, then it's going to suffer and we're all going to suffer as well. It's just such a repeated theme that comes up over and over again. Okay, uh, I'll move on to the next one. He says, um, لا يعظم لا يعظم الذنب عندك عظمة تصدك عن حسن الظن بالله تعالى فإن من عرف ربه استصغر في جنب كرمه ذنبه he says uh, this ties into one of the statements that we covered this morning let no sin reach such proportions in your eyes that it cuts you off from having a good opinion of Allah. Okay, it's really important to take heed of this. For indeed, whoever knows his Lord, whoever knows his Lord, considers his sin as paltry next to his, Allah's, generosity. So, um, very powerful, right? Let no sin reach such proportion in your eyes that it cuts you off from having a good opinion of Allah. For indeed, whoever knows his Lord considers his sin as paltry next to his generosity. This is a very powerful statement. Um, it's, it's, but it's complete reality. And I alluded to this earlier this morning. The, the reality is our ability to sin uh, is very limited. I mean, what's the worst that we can do? Yes, I mean, kaba'id, major sins, we talked about that. But what's the, what's the worst that we could do to Allah? Nothing. There's literally, our sin has zero power over Allah's greatness. I could literally start now and sin until I leave this world. Major, major sin, and it will not affect Allah in terms of Allah's rank, His status, His maqam, in any way. In any way. So what power does my sin have? And now you compare that, so what power do I have with anything, let alone sin? I mean, let's talk about deeds. If I think that me coming to the masjid this weekend, and I don't mean to be self-deprecating here, but if I think that me coming to the masjid and locking myself in for 36 hours and, tell, and, and rising above the rest of the community and doing i'tikaf and praying you know, multiple salahs, and if I think that this come Sunday morning is going to elevate Allah in some way, I'm, I'm, I'm fooling myself. It's, all of us collectively are not going to have any effect on Allah's greatness. So our deeds nor our sins have any, any significant, have any impact on that. So for us to think that my sin is harming Allah in some way, I'm, I'm, I'm fooling myself. It's only harming myself, if anything. But let me now compare that m minor ability of committing a sin to the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's a completely different playing field. It's a completely different playing field. Now, I gave you examples this morning of many hadith that talk about the reality of Allah's mercy on the Day of Judgment. Now, those are not there to encourage us to continue to sin. Those are there to highlight to us how powerful Allah is and how dominant His mercy is and how He can do as He wishes regardless of what we do with ourselves. So if, I, if, 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 if a believer you know, spends their life sinning, we've been told bad outcome. But if we compare it to the mercy of Allah and the ability for Him to be generous... It's very possible that Allah Ta'ala has mercy on us in the Day of Judgment, and that's our hope, and that's our, that's our desire. His generosity outweighs anything. 
In fact, you know, in, 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 on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's throne itself, it's written that my, gener my, that my mercy supersedes over my wrath. Right? And in the Quran, many places, in the Rahmati, it talks about the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how powerful it is. So, this comes up often in the context for people when they're drowning in sin or when they're committing sin. This notion of what is my God going to do with me? So, this is what Ibn Ata'illah, who's a master of, 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 uh, of, of the spiritual sciences and, and psychology, uh, human psychology, says. Uh, let no sin reach such proportions in your eyes that it cuts you off from having a good opinion of Allah. It's important that we always have a good opinion of Allah. And, and Prophet said in another hadith um, that I am as my servant thinks of me. I am as my servant thinks of me. So if I think that I have a Lord who's going to punish me and who's going to just do away with me altogether and on the day of judgment I have no chance of surviving based off of what I've done, well then that'll be my outcome as well. But if I have hope that my Allah is going to take care of me, He's going to take care of me in this world, He's going to protect me in this world, and on the Day of Judgment when I need Him most because I don't have any, anywhere else to look, and I hope that He's going to have mercy upon me, then that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be for me. Similarly, when we have loved ones that have passed away, our opinion of Allah toward those loved ones should be positive. If our loved one passed away in the state of Iman, no matter how they lived in this world, that's not, my, that's not the time for me to now say, well, this person never prayed, this person never did this, so let's see what punishment's awaiting them. I don't understand Allah's generosity, number one. Number two, my opinion of Allah is very negative. It should be, Alhamdulillah, Allah took them away in a state of Iman. That's it. And I know that the believers eventually will enter Jannah. Allah's mercy has the ability to outdo any sin that my cousin, my relative, my aunt, whoever performed. Oh Allah, have mercy on their soul. I have high hopes and high expectations that you will take care of them in the Akhirah. So, he said, the commentator says, One should not hold one's sins, our own sins, one should not hold one's sins in such a grave light that one loses hope in the grace and mercy of Allah Most High. One should not lose one's, one should not hold one's sins in such a grave light that they lose hope in the grace and the mercy of Allah Most High. One should not think, quote, the gravity of my sin is so great that there is no forgiveness for it. And I have, on account of this sin, now reached a stage where I am unfit for His grace and mercy. He's quoting what the thought that goes through the minds of many people. I, I'm no longer deserving. I'm no longer fit for this. There's no possibility that I'm going to be the recipient of Allah's mercy. Um, such despair is the consequence of an unawareness of the attributes of Allah Most High. Look, this goes back to that first um, uh, st wisdom that we covered yesterday evening. Do you, does anyone remember what that was about? Knowledge and what specifically did we talk about with as it pertains to knowledge? What about in Munafir? Did we say? Uh, of course, yeah. So, but but what specifically did the commentator mention as um, like the highest form of beneficial knowledge? Yes, yeah. So having uh, understanding who Allah is, not 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 who Allah is because we'll never fully understand who Allah is, meaning his what we know about Him through what He's told us. So having a firm understanding and grounding in knowing who Allah is, how He deals with His servants, how He deals with humanity, how, uh, uh, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's reactions are to particular things. And this is all in the Qur'an, right, of course. Um, this is essential. And if I, if I still have not 
learned about the attributes of Allah, then that's going to um, lead me towards despair when I transgress against Allah because I don't fully understand the notions of his justice in comparison to his wrath, in comparison to his mercy, etc., etc. So he says, such despair is the consequence of an unawareness of the attributes of Allah Most High. And that, this is why, the, you know, many a times you'll hear uh, people of understanding and taqwa, they often talk about the mercy of Allah in their talks, more so than the wrath of Allah. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself talks, uh, references his mercy, mercy being more extreme than his wrath. And this is the reason it comes up. And, and um, uh, it, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. So he says, the commentator continues, One who has recognized the Creator, Allah, and is aware of His attributes will be acquainted with His attributes of forgiveness and grace. Right? Um, if we understand His attributes, we ourselves will be more familiar with His attributes of forgiveness and grace. He will thus understand that in the presence of these infinite attributes, His sins are insignificant. His sins are insignificant. Right? Going back to what I had mentioned earlier, it's a lot harder for us to sin than for Allah to forgive. It's a lot harder for you and I to sin on an individual or collective level than it is Allah than it is for Allah to forgive us individually or on a collective level. That's our belief. That's not I'm not making this up. This is our belief. In such a state, a servant will always have hopes of being forgiven. A servant will always have hopes of being forgiven. Now, um, you know, there's, there's many hadith that talk about uh, uh, the, these two topics that I just covered. The first was a sign of the heart's death is the, is the, the heart's death. The Prophet said in, one, in, in a couple of hadith, one hadith he mentions that uh, I sometimes perceive a veil over my heart. So then I do istighfar a hundred times. I'm paraphrasing the hadith. It's Sahih Muslim. I perceive a veil over my heart and when I, do, when I did or when I do, I would do istighfar a hundred times. Meaning, the reaction or response of the Prophet ﷺ perceiving this veil. And, I mean, imagine what veil is over the heart of the Prophet ﷺ, right? I mean, he's perfect in terms of humanly perfection. It's him. But when he would perceive some distance or some separation or whatever, and in our context, I perceive that I'm not phased by missing worship and I'm not phased by, the, by, by, by performing sin, then I should immediately turn toward istighfar like the Prophet ﷺ did. Astaghfirullah. And I'm constantly asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me. So that's the prior hadith. In this hadith, when he's talking about let no sin reach such proportions in your eyes that it cuts you off from having a good opinion of Allah. For indeed, whoever knows his Lord considers his sin as paltry next to his generosity. The Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, and he starts this hadith, this, this hadith off by saying, nafsi biyadi, in, in, By one in whose hands is my soul, which is basically him saying, I swear to God. Right? I swear to God. That if you do not perform sin, you all do not perform sin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will replace you with a group of people that will perform sin and then seek forgiveness. So the station of performing sin and seeking forgiveness afterward, or doing tawbah after, is very, very, very powerful. And yes, I mean, we don't try to perform sin, right? We're not, but, um, uh, but it happens. And, and turning back to Allah after performing sin is an incredible blessing that He's given us. And it's something that all of us have to take heed of and perform regularly and consistently. And when we do that and we're in that state, we should have an, uh, a very high opinion of Allah. We should have a very high opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, 
uh, a corollary to this is, is look, it's, it's, it's to understand um, that we aren't angels. Angels are perfect in their ability to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sorry, that's all they do. We as human beings have choices to make. And look, the reality is, um, at any given point in time, you and I are not fulfilling the debt that we owe to Allah. At any given point in time, you and I are not fulfilling the debt that we owe to Allah. When I pray my salah, which is the pinnacle of worship, and I'm standing before the qibla, and I could be standing and performing salah in the haram, in front of the Kaaba, in congregation, earning not just 27 times reward, 100,000 times reward for praying in the haram of Mecca, and I'll be praying with the imam in congregation, and after I finish my fard salah, the first things that come out of my mouth are, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. I'm seeking forgiveness because of the worship that I just did. It's never going, no, even our worship is never going to uh, remove or relieve the debt that we owe to Allah even in that moment because my thoughts are not going to be there, right? I mean, everything, think about it. We're sitting here right now in the masjid. We're in Artikaf, right? We've made, it, we've made an intention for, for an Artikaf. We're listening to the words of one of the people of piety of our past. We're reviewing the hadith of the Prophet We're referencing the Quran. We're, most of us, maybe all of us are in a state of wudu. We're, we all at this point have a, have a firm intention. Do we think that at this moment we aren't sinning? Do, do we think that at this moment we're, we're angelic? No, because you know, there's, there's so many layers to it. Yes, we're not performing a major or maybe a minor sin, but where are our thoughts? Where is our adab? I mean, you know, where's the state of our heart as we're sitting in the gathering? You know, all of these things need to be considered. And even if the, in the most pristine form of worship, such as prayer, I'm taught to do istighfar immediately after, what about the not so um, supreme forms of worship, like sitting in a gathering like this? We are so in debt to Allah at every moment, whether it be during or after sin, whether it be during some neutral point in our life, or whether it be when we're sitting, even remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are always in debt to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we are always in need of his mercy. And the, of course the example, the pinnacle example of this is the Prophet who never committed a sin, whose heart was always connected to Allah, who, would, who was the most generous of all of creation and the most just, just toward all of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation, humanity, Muslims and non-Muslims. He would make dua for those people that attacked him and opposed him. The most perfect of creation is, you would think, if anything, he should be owed something. But he himself is saying that no one will enter Jannah, not even myself, except for with the mercy of Allah. Even the Prophet who's perfect in his worship, in his interaction, in his existence, is dependent on Allah's mercy because he himself feels there's such a significant debt that he owes to Allah despite the state that he's in. So that means for all of us, we are also, we should always just be in a constant state of tawbah, of turning back to Allah, no matter what we're doing. We should always be in a constant state of tawbah and a constant state of istighfar because that, when the Prophet says that I swear in whose hand is my soul, that if you don't commit sin, Allah will replace you with people that do and that will be forgiven. It's because um, that, I mean, part of it is because we're, we're weak. We're weak servants of Allah and we are always indebted to Him. And we, we can, we're never going to absolve ourselves of the need to have to do istighfar or tawbah or turn back to Him or feel like we have a debt toward Him.
we will never absolve ourselves of that. So, just to, uh, re- re- I'll just re- read these once again. The first one was, A sign of the heart's death is the absence of sadness over the acts of obedience that you have neglected and the abandonment of regret over the mistakes that you have made. And then the second, Let no sin reach such proportions in your eyes that it cuts you off from having a good opinion of Allah. For indeed, whoever knows his Lord considers his sin as paltry next to his, Allah's, generosity. Um, And then I'll just read the translation of the last two from this morning so that we can conclude this chapter. There is no minor sin when His justice, His capital H, Allah's justice, confronts you. And there is no major sin when His capital H, Allah's grace, confronts you. And then, finally, when you commit a sin, let it not be a reason for your despairing of attaining to righteousness before your Lord, for that might be the last sin decreed for you. So uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the uh, ability to um, internalize these statements. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, allow us to just constantly be in a state of turning back to him. Uh, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always um, give us a tawfiq to have a, a very positive opinion of him. So we have about uh, ten, 10 minutes or so before lunch. So um, I would like, uh, so we'll just keep this, t- this time open for questions uh, per- pertaining to what we've covered from yesterday until, until today, inshallah. And then uh, for about 10 minutes, and then we'll have a break after that. So if anyone has any questions, you can just raise your hand and uh, we can answer them, inshallah. That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember, sp- maybe I spoke about this this morning, I don't remember, but... Um, okay, yeah, I'm going to read the question. The question is, uh, I, I guess this morning I had alluded to the importance of sacrificing uh, for other people, right? Making sacrifices for others, and how that's essential to the soul, it's essential to our existence, and it's an expectation that Allah has of all of us. But the question is, um, like, um, yeah, certain people you see here serving the community, but what, like, what role do us as individuals have? How do I determine in which situation or how I'm supposed to sacrifice? So I think this question is a great question because it's something that we have to take a step back and appreciate, which is, uh, which is a deeper issue, which is, like, what's my circle of responsibility? What's my circle of responsibility? And if I can understand that, uh, then it will uh, be easier for me to give attention to those things that need attention. Um, so what I, I guess what I mean to say is, if I can understand those things that I'm responsible for when, it's, when I come before my Allah, then it's easier for me to know where are the places that I should be making sacrifices as well. <clears throat> the first circle of responsibility that I have is for myself. right? Myself, and not in a, in a selfish way, uh, not in a feed me, indulge in this world kind of way, but in terms of myself and my own spiritual state and my own, my own heart. Uh, I know that before I'm going to be asked about anybody else on the Day of Judgment, I'm going to be asked about myself. And I know on the Day of Judgment, before any other topic comes up, the first question that I will be asked about on the Day of Judgment is going to be about my prayer. Right? So what, what I'm just highlighting here, that if I have not uh, firmly grounded myself in my own personal worship and connection with Allah... How is it that I'm going to be able to move beyond this immediate responsibility toward the additional responsibilities that Allah has put on my shoulder? 
So that means that all of us have to give attention toward ourselves and our relationship with Allah uh, first and foremost, because otherwise it's the blind leading the blind, and otherwise it's and that, and that doesn't that doesn't that's not going to go very far. The next responsibility that I have, which means I have to make sacrifices for myself, which means I yes I might have to disconnect from my phone. That's a major sacrifice. That means I am going to have to sacrifice my sleep so I can get to the masjid for fajr, and that means I'm going to have to sacrifice um, you know my stomach so that I eat and consume a little bit less. And yes, that means I'm going to have to sacrifice you know various things to maintain my own soul. If I cannot make these sacrifices for my own soul, how am I supposed to make sacrifices to help the broader community uh, around me? It's not possible. You can't, we, we just can't do that. I mean, everyone, the, there's a common notion in society that you have to take care of yourself before you take care of other people. We apply this physically, right? I mean, anyone who's, let's say, has a sick family member, and the number one principle that you tell the caregiver is, if you don't take care of yourself, you will not be able to help the person that you're trying to help. Well, spiritually as well. If I don't take care of my spiritual health, there's no way I'm going to be able to attend to the spiritual needs of my children, my spouse, my parents, my family, the community, the ummah, etc., etc., etc. So that's my immediate circle of responsibility is, is myself. The next becomes my immediate family. And I have to be very mindful of this responsibility Allah put on my shoulders. L let me just take a step back. Actually, let me go back to myself. If I, well, okay, I, I don't want to. Okay, so let's go back. The second responsibility that I have is my immediate family. My children, my parents, maybe my siblings fall under that immediate family. And I know that I'm going to be asked about them on the Day of Judgment. How did I serve them? How did I raise them? How did I support them? The people that live under my roof in particular are going to be asked about how I treated them. Because I spent the most time with them than I did with others. So I have to make sacrifices for my family as well. Um, and and that, that's a lot of work, right? That's a lot of work as well. So if I consider myself, my family, and then my extended family and the local community around me, right? That's a lot on my plate as it is. That's a lot on my plate as it is. So I have to get, so, so the sacrifice, and then comes, you know, sort of the broader community at large. Now what we tend to do is we start off in the community and then we try to work our way backwards in toward our family and toward ourselves. In fact, many of us, uh, many people in the community neglect the, the, the spiritual needs of their children and their immediate family to attend to the spiritual needs of the people in the masjid. I mean, I, if I haven't figured out my own house, how am I supposed to take responsibility for the people in the community? And then I want to take responsibility for people in other parts of the, of the, of the country or in the world. I can't, I can't even, uh, you know, take care of those immediate responsibilities before me. So to, to come back to your question is that um, everyone has to have a discussion uh, with themselves, recognize Am I taken care of? Um, is my immediate family taken care of in terms of spiritual needs and in terms of uh, sacrificing toward them? And if I still have a little bit of space beyond that, I should find one other place that I can make some contribution. And that could be in the masjid. That could be in, the, I mean, starting off with the local community is ideal. Uh, or that could be some other project that I want to involve myself in. But again, the first two or three responsibilities, if I factor in myself, Many of us are in school and we have our careers, we have our immediate families and our extended families. That, itself, that in and of itself can be such a burden um, that it's hard to get to that next level as well. So, of course, this is an individualized question, but that's sort of the long answer to the question. How do I decide to move on to the next phase? Well, uh, it requires a little bit of an assessment. Like, where do I stand? Uh, for instance, like uh, we talked about um, uh, our own heart. Uh, what's my consistency in the masjid? 
What's my consistency with my Quran? What's my consistency with my routine? What progress am I making in my dhikr, etc., etc.? I have to give attention to all of those things. Now, I'm not going to neglect the needs of my family while I'm sorting out myself, right? But, but I, I can put other things on hold that are maybe secondary or let's say tertiary or quaternary levels of, of care I'm providing to make sure that I've, I've addressed these things and, and simultaneously making sure that my family's needs are attended to. Um, and, then, and then beyond that, you extend. But I think it just requires an assessment of the self. Look, the, the problem is we're having this discussion. The Sahaba of the past, like, they made incredible sacrifices for the people around them. And they weren't caught up in themselves. Now, it's not because they neglected their own spiritual selves. It's because they were that spiritually advanced that they were able to help the people around. They were able to help the people around. They were able to take over the lands around them. They were able to do so many things because they themselves... And their immediate families were so firmly grounded uh, that everything else, you know, there was no discussion of should I make a sacrifice beyond myself. So we have to we have to really look at the people of the past and look at what they did. I mean, look, <laughs> it's it's silly, but if I can't disconnect from my addiction to TikTok or to YouTube, how in the world am I supposed to have a deeper concern for the Ummah of the Prophet how? I can't. If I can't go to bed without looking at my phone for an hour because it doesn't help me get to sleep, how am I supposed to have a deeper concern for the greater community? I can't even get over my own personal addictions. What support am I going to help for others? You know? So I know it's, it might sound funny, but this is the reality of our, of our, of our state right now. We're, you know, if I cannot you know, over, uh, if I cannot respect the alarm in the morning that tells me to wake up and pray to Hajj or get to Fajr or the Masjid, and I can't overcome that nafsi desire of myself, I, who am I to now challenge the nafsi desires of, of other people in the community and say, why is this person doing this? And look at all these people. I can't even control myself. I can't even wake up in the morning. And I'm here telling other people, don't do this, don't do that. I digress. Yeah, a great question. The question is, uh, let's say that I, I'm, I'm in a situation where I'm taking care of myself, I'm t and, and myself also includes my immediate obligations. Like I have to earn halal income, I have to, um, you know, uh, meet my own spiritual needs, and then I have my family as well, right? Maybe I'm married, I have children, maybe I have parents I'm caring for, and I, I feel that it's hard for me to go beyond that because I may compromise on number one and number two. Do I have to go beyond that? No, no, and that, that's what I'm trying to say here. That many people think that they have to go beyond that, which is ideal, right? But, it's, but, but you have to factor in one and two. And if one and two are not properly addressed, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm still having arguments on a daily basis with my spouse, and my kids and I are not getting along, and you know, I can't figure out the, my right hand from my left hand, and I'm struggling from, with coming to the masjid, and I'm struggling with avoiding sin, and this and this. Folk, it's completely acceptable to stop at one and two and make sure that these things are firmly grounded before moving, moving ahead. And the mistake of, the, of many people is that they move ahead and neglect one and two. But one and two are coming on the day of judgment. Of course, others may come, you know, but at the, at the, okay, so let's say you address one and two. Can I not still make dua for the betterment of three, four, five, and six? Of course. And that's, but that ties into number one. Like, if I, you know, that ties into number one. So I can, I still do play a role. It's just not going to be as, you know, obvious of a role. Um, and in this day and age, unfortunately, we have people who are taking responsibility on their shoulders for, for, for other causes, noble causes, good intention, but at the expense of their, of their own families. And, and that's a problem. The question is, um, when uh, we are doing good, 
uh, we sometimes begin to think that we are um, better than others. Uh, how do we avoid that feeling? Um, so I think it has to do with the perspective of what we're looking at. Um, I've, I'll try to use this analogy. I've used it before, but it may not sound right. But let's say that you had the ability to hear the conversation of a bunch of ants on the ground, like Sulaiman And these ants are forming a, you know, or they're, they're, they're collecting food and they're making their little mound or whatnot. And you can hear, you can hear what they're saying. And you hear, and they all look the same to you, but one ant is saying, look how much work I'm doing, look how much, I'm, look how much stronger I am uh, to the other ants. Um, what would you say? You'd say, That's, what's a silly conversation? You all look the same. You guys are all doing the exact same thing. You're just a bunch of silly little ants on the ground um, uh, that are just moving around and you make, you're acting as if you're making some major contribution to society when in reality you're just handling this little ant mound on the ground that's otherwise insignificant and plays essentially no greater role in society or in the world. Right? I mean, that's what we would say. Uh, now, uh, translate that to us as human beings. Uh, where that, this analogy that I've given... Um, the ants are having a bigger impact on us and on society than we ourselves have on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when I begin to think that I'm better than so-and-so, so ultimately we're all tiny little ants, and the differential between myself and the next person is very negligible. Although it may, it may look like it's a big difference, it's very negligible when you compare yourself, or when I compare myself to the greatness of Allah. So the solution is always to remind myself, where am I in my relation with Allah, or where do I stand? What's the differential between myself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Even if I go from here to here above all these people in the community, myself and Allah is always going to be much higher. Allah is always going to be great. So I don't have anything to boast about when I compare myself to the master of the universe. That's point number one. Does that make sense? The second is that it's always helpful to have a teacher that you can always look up to. Because um, It'll always humble you and me. Uh, you know, anytime I think that I may have accomplished something, sometimes that thought comes into mind. And I've, either, I've already tried the analogy of Allah's Most High. I come and sit in the company of my teachers or, or my, any, my sheikh or any of my teachers uh, that I have close relationships with, and I'm just amazed at how much more they've done every single time than I have. Where they stand, what their state is, I mean, it's incredible. It really is. Um, so uh, I think that's something that. Um, needs to be uh, considered. Um, if I don't have people in the community that I can sit with and be with and be inspired by and be humbled by, well, then I need to find them and they exist. Um, I mean, the Sahaba had the Prophet to them. If any thought came into their mind about where they stood, right, above others, come and sit in the company of the Prophet to them. It's humbling. And look at the Prophet to them. He's above all of us. He's above all of creation, all of, all, including the Sahaba. And now he's trying to give da'wah to the people of Ta'if, and they don't receive it, and he comes back and says, maybe this is my fault. Maybe I did something wrong. He's trying to give da'wah to kuffar who are tormenting him, and his thought is, maybe, maybe this is me. So, that's that. So uh, I think uh, we will have a, we'll, we'll have more time for questions. There's actually a dedicated session this evening for that. And then hopefully even after the extra sessions, I'll try to keep 10 or 15 minutes for more questions, inshallah. Uh, but there will, uh, there will also be a, a dedicated question session at the end, inshallah.